and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve each week as your host and interviewer. Today is a first. It is the first time we have invited a guest back, not for their second interview and not even for their third interview, but for their fourth interview because of the number of downloads, the response our listeners and viewers give us. We've invited Chris McChesney, who is the lead author of Franklin Covey's book, The Four Disciplines of Execution, to rejoin us for the relaunch of the new version. Chris, welcome back to On Leadership. Thank you, Scott. This Delighted is to have you here. It's good to be out. Yep, you flew in from Atlanta. Yes. You are only the second guest of the year. We've had live back on set. I've been fully vaccinated. We're six feet apart <laughs> and we're not, um, we're being cognizant of that. Delighted to have you back. Thanks, Scott. Good the book be. has done phenomenally well, even through the pandemic. You're, you and your authors are now just shy of a million copies sold from around the world, including leadership and eBooks and audiobooks and such. And you and your team of co-authors have updated the book for a new re-release. We're talking about that in a few moments. What I'd like to do before we go into what's new about the book is kind of revisit. We're a year into the pandemic. Hopefully yep. we're coming out. Yep. And I'm guessing execution has become not just a must-have skill, but a vital survival skill for organizations. What have you learned as you continue to consult and train and keynote virtually around the world? Talk for a few minutes around the role execution is playing in business resurgence now kind of post-pandemic. So in the 20 years we've been on this topic, as a lot of people might say, this year is unlike any other. Two factors that really stand out. One, it doesn't seem to matter the organization or the industry, everybody's making a pivot right now. Some for survival, some for opportunity, some because their customers are making a pivot, but everybody is moving right now. So execution is at sort of an all-time high. And some businesses are, are receiving enormous benefit from the yeah. pivot in economy and their business has never been better. Which is a different type of execution. So yeah. they're, they're making changes operationally, yeah. they're taking advantage of opportunities, but it doesn't matter who you talk to, and I keep waiting for the exception. It doesn't matter who you talk to, they're moving. No one seems to be standing in the same place as they were before. So if that's exhibit A, exhibit B is the people that have to make these changes are dealing with about all of the ambiguity they can tolerate on a personal level. And particularly if you compare it to last year. So never has there been a higher degree of change required and the people that have to make the change, they're sort of spent. And everybody kind of gets it, right? You're like, I can't take any more uncertainty. Like, I don't know what's going on with mom and dad. I don't know what's going on. Are the kids back in school or they're home this week? Okay. Is anybody learning anything? Like, there's just so many moving parts. So these two factors have created a bit of a storm when it comes to execution. You talk about ambiguity. At Franklin Covey, a lot of our clients are hiring us to help build their cultures. You know, this culture used to be a buzzword, and now it is no longer that. It is like a legitimate, measurable Necessity, thing inside yeah. companies. It's why people leave organizations. Yep. It's why they join organizations. What is this impact having this ambiguity you're seeing on cultures, virtual now and work environments, hybrid? I heard yesterday where there was a couple of companies, was it General Motors or Ford that just told close to 40,000 office workers that they can choose now to work at home permanently if they want to? What does that do to culture? Talk yeah. about the link between ambiguity and cultures inside yeah. companies. So if you think about ambiguity a little bit like carbon monoxide poisoning, uh -oh. you, don't know, you don't know you're hitting a threshold until you've hit it. And it, 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 at a certain point, 
people just can't take any more. Yeah. Um, if, if you're having to do something new, if you're having to you know, initiate significant change and do something you haven't done before, that's additional ambiguity on top of all the other personal stuff that's going on. And what we see is people don't quit, they don't have fits, they don't, they're not defiant. What they do is they go back to the day job. Because even though the day job might be hectic, I know it, it doesn't have the same degree of ambiguity. And whenever you introduce a new goal, there's all this uncertainty. Is this really what we ought to be doing? How do we get there? What are the steps, right? There's just so much unknown. And so this seems to be kind of the, the head of the issue right here. Chris, this has now become the world's largest weekly consumed leadership podcast globally, both audio and in video. Right For the new listeners and viewers that may yes. not know the content very well, take a few minutes and give us a primer on each of the four disciplines. Discipline one. Yeah, so even, even as I'm saying that, this is not a four disciplines for doing everything you have to do. This is four disciplines for doing the hardest thing you have to do. Okay, so discipline one is about moving from a concept of what you want to a very clear finish line and deadline. Discipline two is figuring out what are the levers for getting this to work. What are the, what we call lead measures? What are the, what are the equivalent of diet and exercise metrics mm. that I can use for moving an output as though it were weight loss? What's the equation? What's the bet? That's what discipline two is about. Act on lead measures. Discipline three is how you throw the game on switch. Keep a compelling scoreboard. Do I know right now for the week, are we winning or losing? Like put that strategic bet in real time. And discipline four is force against leverage. It's weekly commitments and accountability to put energy against that strategic priority instead of just being lost in the day job. So it's a, it's a practice set of set of disciplines for doing the hardest part of what you have to accomplish. It's been a decade since you and your co-authors, Sean Covey and Jim Hewling, wrote the book, became a number one instant bestseller on the Wall Street Journal. Thousands of organizations, for-profit, not-for-profit, private, governmental, NGOs, public companies, implementing the disciplines inside their organization. What's been the upside from the last 12 months, months of this pandemic. Great question. In terms of the execution opportunities clients are facing and how the disciplines you've seen are helping them. The one thing that we have heard is that in some cultures, it shook people out of their existing ways of thinking. Hmm. So we've had some people say, hey, we've been able to execute. Right? Yeah, <laughs> we've been able to execute on this and this, and we've been talking about this stuff for five years. So along with the uncertainty and with the negatives, it sort of allowed people to, uh, forced people to sort of let go of some existing long-held practices and processes. You know, 10 years ago you wrote this book, and like I mentioned, it sold just shy of a million copies, translated into how many languages? Uh, 14 right now. 14 languages, congratulations. I remember where I was a year and a half ago when you and I had a conversation about perhaps it was time to re-release a oh, new yeah. updated version. Yep. I was in the drive-thru of Dunkin' Donuts in Salt Lake City. I don't know why I remember <laughs> that, but I remember I had to pull out of the drive-thru because the conversation became really exciting and is it time, is it not time? And that was a year and a half ago. You yep. and your co-author, Sean and Jim, spent painstaking time the last 18 months documenting all your new learnings, really kind of going back through all your notes, the thousands of engagements, the hundreds of live keynotes around the world, all the crisscrossing million miles you've sent. Talk to our listeners and viewers around why now, 
have you decided to rewrite the book? And what are the big ideas that are in the new re-released version that perhaps weren't in the first original one? So there was 10 years before we wrote the first book mm -hmm. where we were working I think we got up to just shy of 2,000 cl different clients wow. we had worked with when the first book came yeah. out. So that's People it. that were hiring Franklin Covey right. to implement the four disciplines. Yeah, before that they the had learned about through us or through yeah. little audio or video marketing that we had done, but there was no book. At the 10-year at the point, the book comes out and this thing scales up way beyond what we ever thought it would. Yeah. The need, I think, was really bigger than we even anticipated. But during that 10 years, up until the release of this book, what we learned <laughs> is that what we were trying to say in the book, they got most of it, but there were certain things that oh, we didn't communicate the way that we had wanted to. And there was some of that, there were some things that we were still continuing to learn, but it's a little bit like that sonar ping. You know, in a submarine, they ping, and then they wait for the ping to come back. Yeah. The first book was like a sonar ping huh. to, the, to the leadership world, and when the ping came back, we, we found ourselves too often saying, I know that's what it sounds like. And where this, where this really showed up was the difference between what leaders at the front line do and what leaders of leaders do, particularly as it relates to creating a breakthrough and implementing this methodology. And we started to see that in the first edition of the book, there was some uncertainty and a little bit of confusion. And that was exacerbated by the fact that we had really gotten, I think, much clearer in, in the last five to eight years on exactly what the differences were if you were a leader of leaders. In other words, if you were an organizational leader versus a team leader, the teams behave like the cells of a body. Maybe is a good way to look at it. And the principles, all four principles apply at that cellular level, and they also apply at the systemic or the organizational level. They just apply a little differently. And so I would say of the 30% new content in this book, probably 20%, maybe a little even more than that, is really focused on how organizations apply focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability. I'm guessing you and your co-authors, Jim and Sean, are hoping that not only a whole new set of readers take advantage of the book, but also the nearly million people who have read the book yeah. choose to buy a second one, not because we need them to buy a new book, but because the insights could help take them to a new level. What specifically, if someone were to have read the first book, yep. what will they learn and benefit from from having read the new book? I believe that someone reading the new book sustainment and maintaining the process is much clearer. And I think we've learned a lot. This has been very dynamic. Though I mean, I wish we could say, hey, we did a bunch of research up front, we had the answer, and we've been telling people about it for the last 20 years. That's not how it works. Hmm. You, you go, these are principles. And we didn't invent the principles in the first place. And so all along the path, we're getting better and better at, okay, how do you apply the principles of focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability when you're having to run a project and you're not a project manager by profession. How do you do that when you're in a large organization but all the units underneath you do exactly the same thing? Mm -hmm. Or when they don't, when they're multiple functions. How do those principles apply in different settings, in different situations? And so you have a full evolution of the application of those principles. And I think the, 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 the most important thing is where to apply this treatment, and quite frankly, where not to. Hmm. 
If you can just get something executed, just do it, get it done. But when it really requires the hearts and minds of your people, this is where this methodology makes the biggest impact. I wish you could muster some excitement about the new book because, <laughs> I'm kidding. Talk about your co-authors. So again, Sean Covey and Jim Hewling were co-authors with you in the first book. Right. And they both have been out keynoting around the world and right. implementing it in every possible organization, including Sean Covey, who is the president of our education division. Right, right. And along the way, you had lots of internal implementation specialists and consultants that were out with clients in the trenches. You also had some clients that you learned a lot from. Right. On the new edition, you've chosen to invite Beverly Walker and Scott Thiel to add additional insights as contributing authors. Yeah. First, talk about the role that Beverly Walker plays in the new re-released edition. Yeah, so, so if, if, if Scott Thiel is the Franklin Covey consultant, what we call practice leader, yes. if he's the practice leader that we've showcased in this, and he's been making contributions for 20 years, yes. he could have made the argument he, he should have been there in the first copy. I think he's been in the firm for nearly 30 years, yeah, is he not? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then Beverly Walker would be the client that we looked at and said, okay, this is the person that we really want to highlight. She writes the foreword to the book, and I love her introduction. Beverly has a unique gift for putting these principles in a way that leaders really get. And we've taken, we've got her on video, we've taken little clips, and every once in a while we'll get frustrated trying to explain something. We'll just like, just listen to her, listen to her. BJ is what we, what we call Beverly. Yeah. And, uh, uh, she really made a huge splash with this methodology, um, I guess it's 12, 13 years ago, yeah. when she um, led an effort in the state of Georgia uh, that reduced repeat cases of child maltreatment by 60% across the state. Uh, Georgia had one of the longest backlogs uh, for, for critical social worker cases in the United States. And within a year, they had no backlog at all. Remind us what her role was. She was head of the human services branch of the Georgia state government, right. uh, about 20,000 person bureaucracy that covered everything from children and family services to mental health to public safety. Yeah. And she was one of those leaders. There's probably about a dozen leaders out there that when we introduced these principles to, we just sort of sat back and went, oh, that's what you can do with this mm -hmm. stuff. And she was one of the leaders that took to it like a fish to water. The first time, and I, I got to be the person that, that taught it to her team, and she tells the joke that Governor Purdue literally grabbed her face and said, BJ, you will do this. She wanted no part of it. And they were really funny, they have a funny relationship. And uh, so, but wait, once BJ got it and, and started to understand it, and as I was teaching her team, she would literally let me go about four or five sentences, and then I would look at her and she'd say, let me. And she would then explain what I had tried to explain, but she would put it- Translate in, it. Translate it. Yeah. So I'm realizing after a while, I thought, she's hearing all this for the first time, and she's contextualizing it better than I wow. am. Yeah. This, this person yeah. has a real gift, and that was sort of foreshadowing for what she would be able to do with yeah. this methodology. Right. She wrote the foreword to the book, but she also, her implementation learnings, insights and tweaks were instrumental. We've been right. partnering with her yeah. for um, the better part of, well, I guess, I guess 13 years now. Um, I've got a, she sent me a package of data on a project. Uh, states now hire her to come in and tackle sort of insurmountable problems. 
And, you know, I've, I've got, I'm sitting on a packet of information from her right now where she's saying, all right, this is how I'm looking at this. What do you think, Chris? And um, it's just really fun to see the ongoing impact that, that BJ's making around the United yeah. States. It's not uncommon for Franklin Covey's clients to come back to us and say, and here's an idea how we're implementing this. Have you thought about tweaking this there? We right. receive a tremendous amount of value when our clients help Dave us Dave Grissom at, at, at Marriott, yeah. uh, Colleen Wegman at, at, at Wegmans, um, leaders at Comcast, like so many. Um, and this is why it's been a 20, 20 year development period. Um, we, we keep learning. We keep waiting for the variation in that, you know, the tweaking that goes on to sort yeah. of narrow but you know that's what maybe one of the most exciting parts of this is we are very much students even today so a thank you to beverly walker for your support of franklin covey for decades and also for your contribution to this book you are an icon inside Amen. the franklin covey company talk about scott field's contribution yeah thanks scott he uh, uh scott's fantastic and and has been a friend of mine for the better part of 30 years and the organizational framework that we use uh, called the strategy map um, was developed by Scott and he's Scott has continually been in the laboratory at Franklin Covey um, and is one of the first people that, that Jim Hewling and I will go to when we have a new idea and particularly when we want to articulate it well Scott is really good at putting things in the clearest possible way uh, but again uh, his contributions just around how we viewed the disciplines in the context of everything else that has to go on in the organization. It, it wouldn't have been right if, if we didn't give attribution to Scott on the cover of the book. Yeah, well said. Let's go back to the content for a moment. Discipline one, identify the wildly important goals. You use this phrase called WIGs, wildly important goals. Right. Uh, riff a bit on what the rules are that you've learned and you illustrate in the new edition around uh, yeah. crafting wildly important goals. So if you looked at a wildly important goal as the component of your plan, the part of your plan that you can't get done with money, you can't get done with a mandate, even though you're the boss, you can't, right? You can't force this thing, right? That's number one. And number two, you, it's not going to happen in the current day job, within the operation today. So you know, when, whenever you're a leader, this is a great way to think about the whole methodology. When you're a leader and you're saying, we have to do this, and I can't buy it, if I could, I would have, I would have written <laughs> right. the check. You know, you know that yeah. thing in your life, you're like, I, yeah. I don't care what it would have cost, I would have done it. And you, you know- You can't buy compliance. You can't buy a great culture, you yeah. have to earn it. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And, and, and at the same time, you know, um, the way we're running today isn't going to reduce the amount of client churn that we have, mm -hmm. or our safety record, or getting new accounts within that new segment that's gonna be the future of our organization. Like whatever that breakthrough is that you know you have to have, the WIG is a way to target sort of the next success on that breakthrough journey. That's, that's what the wildly important goal is. And the rule is at the highest level is that that thing requires as much pull as it does push. Hmm. So if pushing feels like persuasion, if I could just help you understand, team, <laughs> how critical this is. <laughs> if I could just help you understand how smart this strategy is, I'm sure you'd all go along. This sounds vaguely familiar. I know, I know, I know. We, uh, there was a lot of looking in the mirror that happened when we got into this. Yeah. What we've learned is that the really great leaders with wigs, they're not as interested in persuading they'll make the final call on what the wig is. They wanna hear, they wanna to listen to 
people. So one of the rules, and we get into this in the new book, is when you, when you, as a leader, when you think you know what that is, don't be so concerned about selling people on it. That's not where commitment comes from. No. Where it comes no. from, it's, it begins, what does Stephen Covey teach? The key to influence is to first be influenced. Mm -hmm. It starts by listening. And, by, and one of the things we teach is be transparent. If you've got concerns, share your concerns. This is what we're choosing, we think. We want to hear you out Push first. back on it. Yeah, push right. back on it. Tell me, right? Um, you know, first of all, clarifying questions. Second, feedback questions. And what we've learned when we, when we watch this modeled by leaders is that people who fundamentally might have disagreed with the final decision that was made and the final target that was chosen for the wildly important goal, if they were listened to in the process, they'll help you Yes. They'll even commit. No involvement, no commitment. When it comes yeah. to the wig that they have yeah. to choose to help the bigger yeah. wig. And so that's part, of the, that's part of the pull process we describe. I mean, the big, big insight, if I were to uh, translate it like a BJ would, yeah. I won't BJ, so forgive me, is that gone are the days where the executives in the well-appointed C-suite that has now been democratized by the less well-appointed Zoom call, gone are the days where they're deciding the wigs and then influencing or forcing them out onto the team. That this concept that Dr. Covey popularized, no involvement, no commitment is crucial right. to not just identifying the well-important goals, but kind of pressure testing them, making sure they're yeah. the right ones, but winning the hearts and the minds and the backs the passions of all your people because they're involved and they believe in them. So, so let's, can we take that a step further? Yeah. So a lot of leaders are like, look, I would love to do that. I would love to democratize this process, but I don't want anarchy. What's the balance? Yeah. And so I want you to think of this in sort of a two-step. Or if we step. don't pick your wig, yeah. then you'll never fall That's into our right. wig. Because, That's yes. right. So there are the organizational objectives and then there are the team objectives. And we've, re we've really broken out the difference between those two steps. When it comes to the organizational objectives, the core leadership team has to make the final decision on those. Of course. Those are yeah. not, right? It's, right. Not, it's, it's not a democracy in that sense, right. nor is it, hey, we all have to be on the same page or we don't move forward. We're not looking for consensus building. What we are looking for is what do they know that we don't? What have we not considered? And when they get that you're really, you know, that you really mean to do that, they'd rather be listened to than get their way. Mm. Right? So that's at the organizational level, that's the vibe. But then when it flips, when it then becomes, okay, for your team now, right? For your individual groups that have to contribute, what's the target that you're gonna define that's going to, that's going to drive the higher level strategic outcome? Now we give the ball to the team leader. And we say, you pick. Now, you know, we'll approve, and that we could be, there might be a veto if some of them don't work into the, into the plan, but even if we do veto, we won't dictate. We'll just kick it back into play, yeah. and we'll say, yeah. try again. So, so in, in really giving leaders a very clear idea of when you can push and when you can pull, and in that very delicate area where I have to take the organization in a direction, they may not all want to go. Mm. Yeah. What are the rules for doing that? We, we, we have a whole chapter just dedicated to the specifics of that very challenging part of being a senior leader. Well said, Chris. You mentioned Dr. Covey earlier. Of course, he's passed now just about 
10 years ago, his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it's I didn't mean to smile year. when you said he passed. I was no, just no, thinking no. about, no, you, were I just had some, you I were saying that, and I, I was thinking about it's the okay. fact that my kids always make fun of me for every time they talk to me, I quote Dr. Covey. Me so too. I was, when me you too. said that, I was smiling about, about what my kids would say about what you just said, but it's keep okay. going, Scott. It's Sorry. okay. His book, The Seven Habits Now, in its 30th year, sold 40 million copies. We re- released it a year ago. Uh, you're one of the most tenured associates in the firm. Right. 25 years, how many years? 30 this year. 30th anniversary of Franklin Covey. Yes. You spent this countless month. hours. This month, congrats, man. Right Come, come, yeah, come, yeah. come yeah. yeah, I say this month. I, I think officially it is in April, but I'll I was on board as a fake intern back in February <laughs> well, of 91. Well, we're taping this at the beginning of April, so it, it, right, it's actually, and you know, it's your birth, it's your anniversary yes, month. Yes, that's right. Uh, what I... What I want you to share is you spent countless hours tutoring under Dr. Covey, a privilege and honor that only a handful of associates here. You spent countless hours on planes with him, co-presenting with him, listening to him speak. Groupie would have been well, you know, a, 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 a maybe appropriate title. It's, I appreciate your, your authenticity and self-awareness. Uh, share with the audience what are some of the profound takeaways you learned from Dr. Covey, including some of the insights that he offered shaping your and Sean and Jim's original ideas for the four disciplines? You know, I really meant what I said that, you know, with my kids um, and, and, you know, yesterday I was going out to dinner with a young man that wants to marry one of my daughters. Mm. And I was probably spent a third of the time talking about um, principles that Stephen Covey taught Mm. about the difference between independence and interdependence and that interdependence is a choice that independent people get to make. Mm. I, I, I can tell you that both Say that again, because that's profound. Interdependence is a choice mm. that independent people get to make. Mm. And if you haven't mastered the first three habits yeah. of independence, mm. really interdependence is not as much of a choice for you as Nicely you think. Said. Yeah. And you know, th- these were, there are so many really profound insights associated with true principles. I don't know that anyone's really had the gift at just being able to help human beings, mortals, sort of understand how the world really works and that we are not in charge. We don't get to make up the rules. We don't have, I mean, if, you, if truth is truth, we don't really get our own. Truth, right, is, there's principles and principles govern. And if there's something wrong in your life, if you're having a problem, Dr. Covey was really big on, find the principle that you're violating. Mm. That you're knocking up against. Yeah, and and be humble enough, right, to own the fact that I need to change. And, you know, like I said about influence, you know, maybe the reason I'm not having influence with these these peers of mine is because I haven't let them influence me. Yeah. You know, whatever the the principle might be, um, my wife and I were both employed with him early on, right before we started our family. And she said this a hundred times, that that was the the biggest contributor to the culture of our family is is those sort of those basic rules for human happiness and effectiveness that we learned from Stephen Covey. Well, you're in good company. Last week, we had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Daniel Amen, the famed neuroscientist, psychiatrist. And he says that when any of his daughters date a guy for more than four months, he scans their brain. 
because he wants to make sure that they're healthy <laughs> oh, enough could, to stick around. I could use that yesterday. Very good company, you're gonna, exactly. You're gonna have to take a, a portable small, brain scanner. Mind if we take a small brain sample? <laughs> Chris, you are continuing to keynote around the world. Much of your time is fortunate now spent in your home and your studio, but you actually are back on the road. You're starting to yeah. keynote live yeah, again. I mean, we booked our first few this week. Yeah. We booked our few, first few yeah. live keynotes. In, yeah. in, in combination with this month's relaunch of the book, yep. you'll be back strong in May and June and July back on the road and you've got a great opportunity to also keynote virtually. You tend to be the face of the book with clients out, keynoting conferences, big events, sales conferences. Remind our audience what your sweet spot is. When a client is hiring you to come in and either be the opener or the closer or to work within this conference, kind of what's your sweet spot? So as clients are thinking about bringing you in, they know this is going to be a home run because... It's usually the closer. I'm usually at the yeah. end of the conferences. And, and what they want, people like to end these strategic conferences with a note about execution. Right. And here's all the goals. Here's our strategy. Yeah, yeah. You talked about all we, we're going to do. Right. There's so much right now. And it's almost like when people are about to just sort of go into brain overload yes. or carbon monoxide ambiguity freeze, it's like, okay, and now let's talk about executing this in a way where we all stay sane. And then sort of the, the, the segue, it's a great segue for four disciplines. It's a nice way Makes before sense. they adopt it yeah. to sort of understand, you know what? There are rules for doing this and I can't organize what I have to mm. execute. And based on what I have to do, there's different treatments for the different parts of this giant mess in my head right now that I feel like I've got to get done right now. And so really helping people sort of organize and bring their blood pressure down and give them some very specific tools for, hey, here's how we get started. Makes total sense. Plus, you also can add some excitement with your energy level at the end of a conference, right? That's that's a nice benefit as well. It's funny, it's different online. Like, it's not as big, but I found that the online, I I think... Oh, you're pretty big online. (laughs) But there's a level of intimacy. Like, when there's a giant, if there's a thousand people you can be big and everything, and it's kind of fun, and there's an energy to it. Yeah. But your ability to be interactive through these Zoom mediums and, and Microsoft Teams and others, I, some of that I'm going to miss if it all goes away. I don't think it will all go away. I think I there'll, so there'll be a lot yeah. of that that'll yeah. stay around. Yeah. But I've, I've, over the last year, I've become kind of attached to being able to talk to a lot of people in a very intimate setting that way. Sure. Close us out. You mentioned that one of the big pivots from the original book to the new book is as focus from frontline leaders to leaders of leaders. What are some yeah. of the other big changes you're most proud of with your co-authors on the value that a new re- reader will benefit from the new edition? There's, there's many things, but there's two things specifically that Jim Hewling um, is absolutely world-class at. And one of them is the ability to sustain implementation. Jim is an amazing leader in his own right. Yeah. And he's kind of been my personal mentor. Was a client originally? Originally, yeah. And now he's become a senior leadership yeah. I consultant. adopted him as a mentor yeah. five years before he joined the Franklin yes. Covey organization. Yeah. And we've, we've stayed dear friends um, all this time. Jim is the embodiment. Sometimes I think I'm the antithesis of the disciplines. <laughs> Jim is like the living embodiment. <laughs> Right? People have fun with me because I'm so naturally bad at them that I relate to the problems. <laughs> yes, I can relate. Yeah. Right? He's the yang to your yin exactly. in terms of and business. Jim is just like, he gets it. So Jim really goes into, it's a beautiful chapter in here on uh, sustainment and the way you take something from an idea to a natural part of the way we do things 
in here. I, I think that's the, the first thing. And then the second is, is Jim's just the best writer that I've ever worked with. Yeah. And whenever I'm so frustrated. The insane patience. I know, like <laughs> he just, no, he can take any, any you know, any, and he can just make it work on, on paper. And so, so I, I, I'm excited um, for, for people to see that this time around. Chris, thanks for coming back. Whenever thanks. you air an episode starring Chris McChesney of On Leadership, the downloads, the listens, yes, the emails are I huge. That. You've come back to uh, the fourth interview. Thank you for your time. The book is the second edition new re-release of the Ford Discipline of Execution on sale now this week. We hope you pick up a copy and visit franklincovey.com to connect to Chris McChesney, learn more about how he and his co-authors can keynote your conference, consult with you, bring the disciplines alive inside your organization. Chris, thank you again for joining Thanks, us. Scott. So much. We'll see you back next week for a new guest for On Leadership. Mm-hmm.